0: Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you guys along. I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson. And much like when we had Detective Sergeant James Isaacs in our Child Protection Policing episode a couple of months ago, I think we're going to jump into a topic with our guest today that's, I think, going to be a little difficult to discuss, but one that's been a topic that he's really been proactive in trying to shut down. I think that's why it's important to talk about it here today, and uh, that topic is human trafficking. And we're going to bring him on in just a moment to talk all about that and some of the other things that he's experienced throughout his career. But uh, allow me first to welcome in our host, Mr. Michael Warren. How
1: are you, sir? I'm doing good. And I just want to say right off how good it was to see you and Aaron last week and Martin when we were all together, which is an unusual occurrence because we do these things uh, remotely. Anytime I get to spend with you guys is good time.
0: And it was a rare occasion because not only uh, our executive producer, Aaron, and uh, yourself and and me were in Martin together, but uh, episode 35 guest, Tony, was with us as well. So it's a rare occurrence to have a guest and all the hosts and producers together.
1: Let's not forget the guy that's always lurking in the background in a non-stalking way, Brandon. (laughs) You know, he also was with us as well. So it was nice having the team
0: together. There's a nice uh, virtual academy event that we had and we were all together.
1: Yes. I'm excited about the day. I'm excited about the topic because I think it's a very timely topic. I'm also excited because I get to talk to an old friend. And by old, I mean, it's, we've been friends for a long time and we're both old. So what can you tell us about our guest today?
0: Our guest today, not only a 25-year law enforcement veteran, but he also served with the U.S. Coast Guard, retiring as Command Master Chief in 2019. Currently, he's the resident special agent in charge of Homeland Security Investigations, the field office in Birmingham, Alabama. It is our pleasure to welcome in special agent Doug Gilmer. How are you, sir? Very good. How about you? Very good. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today.
2: Not a problem. Mike did a great job at twisting my arm. (laughs)
1: <laughs> he's good at that <laughs> i did use the word stalking with brandon just a minute ago but uh, uh, there may have been a little stalking going on we do appreciate you being here today I want to start off if we could a while ago because brent this right here is another one of those people that we get to talk to that have literally had a lifetime of public service literally had a lifetime Mm -hmm. doug you and i went to college together and we actually worked in the same office together we also happened to be in the guard together i'm not going to say how long ago but it was multiple decades ago over three decades yeah 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 we're going to edit that (laughs) part out pretty close yeah (laughs) but the thing is though, after we were done with college uh you entered the, the law enforcement profession what was your first law enforcement job once you were done with college
2: so you know i i actually began my law enforcement career while i was still in college so, I actually worked as a seasonal deputy up in Michigan, and that helped make money for me to go to college. Then, I think really when I left college, my first, what I call my first real law enforcement job immediately after college was with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. Well, at the time, it was the Charlotte Police Department, and then Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department.
1: Just so you know, Brent is a native Michigander. Uh, the, okay. Our listeners have listened to. He's from Flint. So he always enjoys hearing uh, people from up in this area. So uh, what what agency was it? What uh, county?
2: That was on Seago County.
1: Very cool. Well, you go to work for Charlotte and a lot of people, they don't think of Charlotte as a big city in the classic big city sense, but that's a busy place. So, so what was your experience like? as a charlotte police officer
2: you know i always tell people that probably my favorite time of my entire law enforcement career and and i've i've been in law enforcement one form fashion of another for over 30 years I, I think my favorite time was actually being a police officer in Charlotte, riding a car, answering calls. That was just some of the best work ever. And and Charlotte is, you know, it, it's a big city. Even even back then in the early 90s, the city of Charlotte itself was larger than the city of Atlanta. Atlanta, obviously, having a, a much larger metropolitan area. But when you look at the, the city itself, the city of Charlotte was actually larger than the, the city of Atlanta in terms of population and, and so forth. After a few years they went to a more regionalized form of government. It became a consolidated agency with the county police department and you had the Charlotte Mecklenburg, you know, PD. Uh, but it was a great, yeah, it was a great experience.
1: How how long were you with Charlotte Mecklenburg?
2: About 9 years.
1: And, and so I have to ask you this. This is one thing that does baffle me a little bit. What made you make the jump from the army national guard to the Coast Guard Reserve? I mean, cuz that that not even close to the same mission.
2: No, at least not not initially. You know, I think back in the day, we didn't have a whole lot going on with the Guard. Uh, you know, I can, I can specifically remember you get a training plan that says that, hey, this month, you're going to learn all about how to maintain, you know, the Dragon missile system. Well, you never actually get to fire it. <laughs> you know, you sit in a classroom and you learn about it uh, and, and that's it. And when I got out of the guard, I had a break in service, but I, I knew at, at some point I wanted to go back in. The Coast Guard was one of those services that always they had an everyday mission, and yeah, you know, every day they were doing something. They weren't they weren't training for something that was going that might happen eventually. They were training for things that happen and that they do you know day in and day out. And I remember my grandfather, who was a career Marine, always spoke very very highly of the Coast Guard. Uh, I, I think he may have been a little a little miffed at the fact that I, I went to the army national guard initially. Um, but I, I remember, I, you know, I just always remembered, you know, his, his stories about the coast guard and the work that he did with the coast guard in the South Pacific during world war II and, and that type of thing. And so it was just kind of a, kind of a natural progression. The coast guards, you know, also a federal law enforcement agency, they're both a military agency or a military organization. They're one of the, you know, one of the armed forces, but they're also, a law enforcement agency, which also makes them very unique. And the, the Coast Guard also having kind of a unique skill set in terms of their deployable port security units and that kind of thing, which I call the Green Guard. They deploy around the world and have been in every theater of operation that every other armed force has operated in You know, a couple of decades. And so it wasn't it wasn't quite as big of a leap, but it was a—it was certainly a welcome change.
1: Doug probably is not going to remember this, but uh, there was a point during our college career he uh, played a, a guard-related trick on me. There was a point where America sent forces into Panama to uh, get rid of Noriega. This, this was the day. This was the days before uh, cell phones and pagers and that type thing. So whenever there was an activation, there was an activation tree. And you would start on this. This person would call these two three people and, and you would go down. That's how that's how you'd get activated. You get word that you were getting activated. And I get this phone call, Sergeant Warren. So yes, this is Sergeant Warren, which was weird getting a call for Sergeant Warren at my house, and the code words came out, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, you've heard of the uh, the ongoing military operations in, in Panama, and so I repeat again, uh, you know, it gave the code words, and do you acknowledge this message? And I'm like. <laughs> Yeah, was the this specific message. code word you were expecting to <laughs> oh yeah oh, yeah it was it was it was it was the right one to this like <laughs> just uh, about the time of, it was, you thought it was i legit. thought it was legit that all of a sudden i hear this laughter and it was this chucklehead right here was calling the jack <laughs> with me and uh you know it was over a break and anyway so so we made the you made the jump over to the coast guard and, and i think that that's one thing that perhaps a lot of our listeners aren't aware of is that there is that dual mission for the Coast Guard, that there's the armed forces side, but there's also a very big law enforcement component to that organization. So you make the jump, eventually you also make a jump in your civilian career, and you ended up leaving Charlotte, Mecklenburg. What agency did you go to once you left there?
2: To the Immigration and Naturalization Service uh,
1: as a special agent. That agency ended up morphing though, didn't it?
2: It did. Yeah. So after 9-11, 2003, with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, what was INS was rolled into DHS, kind of broken up into a couple of pieces. And we became part of what, what is now Homeland Security Investigations.
1: I hate to say the word hard, but, but was that a difficult transition for you? Because you make the decision to take employment with one agency. And then after nine eleven, there's all these big changes in federal law enforcement. Did you find that transition to be difficult or was it something that like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense and I'm all in?
2: I mean, I, I think personally I was, I was all in, I thought it made a lot of sense, but that was me personally. There were a lot of growing pains. Uh, initially, when uh, when we first merged, because you're you know you you took two organizations, you you took INS, you took at least the, the law enforcement arm of INS, you know the special agents, and you took the special agents from the U.S. Customs Service. Both agencies have longstanding you know traditions and have been around forever, um, and suddenly you're you're forcing these two organizations to come together and, and function as one. I, I think I think part of the problem. Yeah, I mean if if you were to ask me in hindsight, I think part of the problem was the pace at which it happened. You know, some of the some of the planning and and that kind of thing going into it probably could have been done differently. And and maybe if they had spent a little bit more time, we could have headed off some of the issues that we had when we first came together. But, you know, here we are, you know, going on twenty years, you know, into this new organization. You know, we're we're functioning as as one organization
1: for me personally but also for our listeners in, in layman's terms how would you describe the basic mission of homeland security what what is your primary mission as an organization
2: so by by statute by law under the homeland security act our number one mission within hsi is national security it is protecting protecting the nation from threats foreign actors or you know whatever we um, you know, I, I think we're actually the only federal law enforcement agency that was ever created that specifically had you know, terrorism and national security it listed as their main priority in their, in their charter. But we actually have very, very broad authority dating back to some of the original legislation that created our, our law enforcement authorities dating back to the late 1700s. We have authority to enforce any federal crime. There's, there's no limit to, you know, to what we can do but obviously there's, there's a lot of federal crimes. Obviously we can't do everything. Uh, but we have primary jurisdiction, primary responsibility over about 450 different federal crimes. And so, you know, a lot of that involves, you know, national security, uh, whether that's whether that's terrorism, counterproliferation, you know, those types of things. It could be transnational criminal organizations and gangs, drug smuggling, financial crimes such as money laundering illicit money remitters cyber crime immigration related crimes so not the not the administrative or the civil enforcement of immigration law but the crimes that can actually send a person to federal prison and then we do we're the lead agency in the federal government for the investigation of international human rights violations and war crimes which is something that a lot of people don't recognize but it's it's very very interesting and very very fulfilling work And then we do a lot of work uh, in the area of counterfeit goods, trademark violations, but then also exploitative crimes like child exploitation and obviously human trafficking.
1: Well, that's one thing that people don't realize a lot. Agencies have areas that they're primarily responsible for, but criminals don't follow those same lines. Uh, You may be primarily responsible for national security, but it could also involve some income tax evasion for the purposes of funding terrorism activities. Right. So would you say that uh, there has been an increased emphasis on, the different federal agencies working together to try and operate outside of silos and communicate better.
2: You know, I, I think there's still some of that because, you know, quite frankly, in this line of work, there's always going to be competition. Absolutely. Um, because there's budgets.
0: <laughs> right.
2: There, there, There's budgets. You've got to feed the beast, right? Yep. Uh, with stats and that kind of thing. I often use the term coopetition because, you know, we, we cooperate uh, with one another, but there's still this underlying stream of, of competition between the, you know, between the organizations, whether we're working with, you know, IRS CID or DEA or ATF or F- FBI or whoever, you know, typically at the end of the day, you know, we're all looking for the same thing. We're, we're all looking to put the bad guys in jail. And we all have some very unique skill sets uh, and some very unique authorities that allow us to work together, you know, to make those cases. But you're never, you're never going to eliminate competition, co-competition.
1: A little healthy competition's good, but th- there are people coming into law enforcement right now, point this out to make people feel old, there are people coming into the law enforcement profession right now that weren't even alive when 9-11 occurred. And for people like you and I that were not only alive, but we were also in the law enforcement profession, that was a very tumultuous time as a society, but also as a profession, because you have these these new roles these newly defined roles these newly defined priorities and missions but as a profession with all the bumps along the way i think we did a pretty good job of adapting and protecting as you said protecting america Mm -hmm. from tax like we had no
2: i I absolutely agree and and yeah, there were there were some bumps in the road and and the the period of time immediately following 9 uh, eleven it was tumultuous uh, and and we were we were working a lot of hours. I think probably the, the first couple of years, I think I was gone from home you know 200 days a year you know and 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 at the time, much of my much of my responsibility at that time was working national security and, and supporting the fight on terrorism. And so I was gone, you know, a, a great deal as part of those responsibilities. But we have persevered. We got better at what we we were supposed to do. And, you know, we're better for it. And I think safer for it today.
1: And, and I know that they kind of intermingle, but just to, to try and make it easier to follow. I want to ship back for a second over to the Coast Guard career. And I, I will be the, the first to admit that I don't know a lot uh, about the Coast Guard. But how would you describe the Coast Guard's? law enforcement function uh, as opposed to its military function
2: so the Coast Guard is unique and um, that and I'm gonna kind of dumb this down a little bit but there's, there's a section you, of you law-
1: listen to the podcast you're dumb it <laughs> exactly
2: down, so. so there's a section of law called posse comitatus which basically means that few exceptions an armed force, you know, cannot function as a law enforcement agency. That section of law does not apply to the US Coast Guard. So there are certain authorities that the Coast Guard has and certain missions that the Coast Guard have that are strictly military, you know, operating overseas, operating in a combat theater. You know, the, the Coast Guard may operate under, you know, rules of engagement. For instance, in its domestic law enforcement mission, or supporting international sanctions, or you know whatever the case might be, narcotics enforcement, that kind of thing. You know, then the Coast Guard, like any other law enforcement agency, adheres to use of force. So the the Coast Guard's law enforcement authority is very broad, much like ours. The Coast Guard is, you know, by definition, by statute. In addition to being federal law enforcement officers, they're, they're customs officers, they're immigration officers. You know, they are charged with primarily. With, with crimes that occur on the water, but not just on the water either. Their law enforcement authority does extend, you know, it does extend on, onto shore and, and, and to some other things. But, you know, most of those, most of the crimes are maritime, you know, maritime related, whether that's maritime smuggling, you know, maritime alien interdiction, you know, whatever the illegal dumping, fisheries violations, whatever the, you know, whatever the case might be.
1: I think it's fantastic and it's so intriguing to me. I love the show uh, Deadliest Catch. And, yes. and the, 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 there's a, the Coast Guard component there, right? Because you, you might have a ship that has a crew member that's injured and they're 200 miles away from port and it's in the middle of the, these you know 15 foot seas and, and it's snowing. Well, who goes to get them? Who's the ambulance? Well, the, the Coast Guard is. And, and right. so you have that component there, but then you you have these, the, these ships down in the Gulf of Mexico and they're interdicting the these semi submersibles that, that are carrying tons of cocaine, you know, that they've got the glory photos, you know, twenty thousand pounds of cocaine intercept. For somebody who's considering the Coast Guard as a career, you really have to be prepared for just about anything. And that's not even getting into the, the, the military side of things. That's just on the law enforcement uh you know uh American side of things.
2: Oh yeah, you know, and and fortunately, you know the, the Coast Guard, you know they, they have a very very diverse you know set of careers. So they have the things like every branch of the military has. So I mean you you know you've got your yeoman, your admin folks, storekeepers, which are your supply and logistics. You got your culinary specialists. Who are your cooks? Who, by the way, the the Coast Guard has the best cooks and and probably (laughs) the best culinary program. (laughs) Well, I mean, I mean, when you're stuck on a cutter and and there's no place to go, the quality of food is a huge morale thing. But, uh, you know, the the Coast Guard wins all kinds of military culinary competitions every year. By the way, right now, I think they're actually offering a thirty thousand dollar. I think it's a thirty thousand dollar recruiting bonus uh, for culinary specialists. You've got bosun mates who are you know kind of the jack of all trades. You've got you know intelligence specialists. You have got IT specialists. Just a, a wide range of things. And then you've got you've got folks health specialists. You know, so your your corpsman type folks. Uh, but then you ha- also have your maritime law enforcement rating, which those folks receive. You know, enhanced you know law enforcement training, not not just from the Coast Guard, but also through you know the the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, and that's federally accredited law enforcement training that, you know, can be oftentimes transferred to another agency on separation from service or whatnot.
1: I've done a bunch of doors, okay? Kicked a bunch of doors, done a lot of high risk search warrants, but there's something incredibly unique and dangerous about doing a shipboarding of somebody who doesn't want you coming on. And and when you watch these folks from the Coast Guard, it's having to do the door. But having to do it from (laughs) one boat to another, it it takes an incredible amount of training, an incredible amount of skill, an incredible amount of uh, dedication to get that type of activity from them. And that's what the Coast Guard does, I would would venture to say, more than any other of the law enforcement agencies out there.
2: Yeah, you know, and and obviously, you know, and, and the Coast Guard also has a tier one element that is very highly trained i was fortunate enough to be plank owner of the the very first unit and the training and the the skills that that those folks you know go through is is intense uh it's on par with any other military branch with any other law enforcement agency while they can operate on land and they do operate on land from time to time their specialization is on the high seas you know it's non-compliant vessel boardings and that type of thing and If I was the man in charge and I knew that there was a vessel that needed to be boarded at sea, while there are other agencies that could do it, I would call the Coast Guard because they're the ones that I think are are best best trained and best equipped and have the most experience at doing it and doing it safely.
1: People should consider that when you're doing the non-compliant shipboarding with ships that are carrying literally millions and millions of dollars of illegal cargo, they're not quite so willing to give it up. And oftentimes they're willing to defend it using deadly force. And, and so it, it takes an incredible amount of bravery, but your Coast Guard career, and I think Brent said it in the, uh, the intro, you retired as command master chief, correct? Correct. And that, that's an E nine.
2: Yes, that is an E nine. So I was a, I was a gold badge command master chief, which means I was a flag level you know, CMC. I was responsible for the, the Coast Guard fifth district, essentially the, the mid Atlantic Eastern seaboard States.
1: Just to put it in perspective, how many gold badge command master chiefs are there roughly in the Coast Guard? Roughly.
2: I think it's increased now, but I think at the time there were nine.
1: That's a significant rise in rank from where we were over 30 years ago as far as levels of (laughs) levels of rank but it's important to point out to people and and, and i spent the time on the coast guard because number one i think it's important for for us to realize the law enforcement function of the coast guard but this was being done in addition to your duties with hsi correct this is how you spent whatever quote unquote free time that you might have this an additional duty not with your other duties correct and brent that's what i was talking about lifelong public servants.
0: No, seriously. Yeah. No free time. I don't know. Not able to to be at home very often, it would seem.
2: You know, that was one of the things that ultimately led to, you know, led to my retirement, you know, was the fact that in my position, it wasn't a one, it wasn't one weekend a month and two weeks a year. It was a second full time job. And every day, every day I had Coast Guard related work to do. Now, it, it might take me 15 minutes where it might take me five hours. But every day I had, you know, I had things to do and I was traveling two, if not three weekends a month. And I was gone, you know, on on various active duty stints, you know, for three, six months, you know, out of the year in in total, it got to the point where I felt like I was having to plan my civilian career with HSI, you know, around around my Coast Guard career.
0: How do you avoid the burnout factor? I mean you you had to reach that at some point. Oh yeah.
2: And, and like I said, that's that that really kind of led you know, led into this. I just realized that I, I couldn't keep doing it, you know, at that pace forever. And that at the end of the day, well, I'll get a retirement from both. Only one of those two jobs is going to pay me enough in retirement to make my mortgage. <laughs> so <laughs> mm-hmm. um sure. so that really that, that really kind of led into it
1: so so let's go back and let's talk about hsi for a second you're still going along uh, as an agent there but at some point investigating human trafficking became a passion for you was what led to that was it a particular case or was it a culmination uh, of several events what, what was it that drew you to say man that right there that needs to be addressed and i am one of the people that is best suited to address it
2: you know i think I always had an interest in exploitative crimes. So, you know, you're you're probably a lot like me when when you entered law enforcement and you went for an interview and they said, "Why do you want to be in law enforcement?" You said, "Well, because I want to help people." You know, for for some people, that's the answer that they give so that they can get a job. For some people, it's truly a matter of heart. And and I think for me, it was more of a heart issue to try and help people. My career you know obviously got sidetracked from some of the things that I wanted to do you know because of the events of 9/11 uh, for a number of years but I, I don't think I ever fully lost focus the the term the term human trafficking we've only really recognized that term since 2000 since the trafficking victims protection act we've recognized human trafficking as a crime as a nation dating back to 1875 our nation's first enforceable Immigration law was also our nation's first anti-human trafficking law. We didn't call it that in 1875. And so, it really wasn't until 2000 that the TVPA was introduced. And then, obviously, it, it takes several years for, for those types of things to, you know, for those kinds of crimes to catch on and, and, and that type of thing. And, you know, early on, you know, we just referred to everything as prostitution. It was all prostitution. Whether it was an adult, whether it was a minor, it didn't matter. It was all, it was all prostitution. But I can remember after the TVPA and, and getting more training, I, I remember thinking back you know, to my, my blue suit law enforcement career, and even, believe it or not, to my Coast Guard career, where we encountered situations that I was like, that was a trafficking situation. That's what that was. We may not have called it that. We may not have treated it as such. But that was human trafficking, whether it was labor trafficking, sex trafficking, whatever the case might be. That was, you know, that was trafficking. So for me, it, it was always an interest. It was always, you know, something that I was, I was passionate about. Um, but it wasn't until really, you know, 2017 that I was, I was getting ready to make the move from Washington D.C. down here to Birmingham, Alabama, and. I was doing my intel, right? I wanted to know, hey, what are the what are the big crimes in the area? What are the what are the things that people are interested in? What are the things they're most concerned with? What are the types of cases that, that the office is currently working? And I knew that the office had worked some trafficking cases, but in talking with other people across the state and, and across the region, I learned that human trafficking was becoming a, a very, very significant issue in the area, but really nobody was doing anything about it. State and local law enforcement wasn't really doing anything about it. Federal law enforcement, for the most part, wasn't doing a lot about it. For me, I saw this as a perfect opportunity you know, for us to step in and take a lead in this area. And it was a priority mission for HSI then, and just like it is today. And so I said, this is this is what we're gonna do. And so when I came down here, I immediately began, you know, working to get, you know, our office and a lot of our, our partner agencies much more engaged in this fight.
0: Now, why why weren't those agencies doing anything at that time? Was it a jurisdiction thing or just, just they had other priorities shifted or whatever? Um,
2: A lot of it was, you know, some of it was priority and then some of it, quite frankly, from a state level, the state of Alabama, you know, up until 2018 really had no effective human trafficking laws. Um, And so it's very hard to enforce something for which there's not a statute.
1: You, You know, I'm a big believer in the concept that words matter. And you're absolutely correct. Looking back over my career, especially early in my career, there were things that I encountered that I called prostitution. And when we use the word prostitution, it's a one individual thing. You know what I mean? It's a single individual that's engaging in this this act that many people, you know, here in Michigan, we have a county prosecutor just south of where I'm at that refuses to prosecute any prostitution crimes. But it's because they're looking at that one individual rather than looking at it when you start using the the phrase human trafficking it shows that it is organizational that it's much larger than just that one person that's on the street i think and correct me if i'm wrong sometimes the lack of enforcement is because there's a lack of understanding of what human trafficking actually looks like from the law enforcement perspective
2: yeah that's true i tell people the biggest difference between prostitution and trafficking is choice. Prostitution is a crime of choice. Now, I will qualify that statement by saying it is a crime of choice by those who often have the fewest choices. Yes. If that makes sense. Yes. Whereas human trafficking, there's no choice. It's compulsory. Through force, fraud or, or, or coercion, it could be an organization but it could also just be one individual. When you look at cases of, for instance, child sex trafficking, some of the best statistics that are out there, and human trafficking is a very, very hard type of crime to quantify statistically because it's underreported and it's often not reported correctly, and so it's, it's very hard to, to put an actual number to it. But best estimates are that you know 40% of child sex trafficking victims are victims of familial trafficking, meaning that they are being trafficked by a family member, mom, dad, sister, brother, grandparent, aunt, uncle, whatever the case might be, or, or someone who has a very close family-like relationship or, or family-like tie. We had a case a few years ago where the girl was, she was nine years old. She'd never left her community. She had never been anywhere but really but home or school, but she was a trafficking victim. Uh, because her dad was selling her to his friends out of the house. She didn't have to travel anywhere. She didn't have to go anywhere. And she was just one person, but yet she's she's still a trafficking victim. And that's the other, you know, kind of the other misnomer or the uh, the other, I, I guess, myth is that trafficking, just because it has the root word traffic in it, trafficking does not involve transportation. You don't have to go anywhere to be a trafficking victim. Now, human smuggling that's transportation that's the unlawful movement of people across the border you know by choice for profit with the sole intent of evading law enforcement in a nutshell it's a crime of transportation it's a crime against the border. human trafficking is a crime of exploitation it's a it's a crime it's a crime against a person. you don't have to move anywhere often it's transient but transportation is not an element of, of human trafficking.
1: I'll speak about me personally, my experience too often, if i got the prostitution portion of it sex act that was done in exchange for something right i didn't take the further step to determine whether or not it was coerced or if it was decided i just assumed that it was decided and there were probably a lot of cases that came into contact with that probably were trafficking they weren't doing this of their own free will but I got the stat and I didn't know any better. I didn't know how to make right. an investigation. And I think that that's one of the things that has been emphasized recently is to raise the awareness and law enforcement that just because you come across someone who's engaging in prostitution, don't just accept that at face value, take it a little bit further, ask extra questions because maybe it's something bigger than what you actually see at face value.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and, and quite honestly, most trafficking victims are not going to disclose that they're being trafficked. Some of them don't even understand that they're being trafficked. You know, they say, "Well, I, you know, I, I wanted to do this or or whatever." They're they're trying to protect not only themselves, but they're trying to protect their trafficker. You know, there's kind of a professionally we call a trauma bond, oftentimes between the the victim and their trafficker. The trafficker's been the one that's you know been been paying for the hotel room, has been buying them food, you know, whatever the case might be. And they're kind of they're maybe supplying them with drugs or alcohol or or whatever. So there's a there's a bond there, you know. And they've been conditioned not to talk to law enforcement. One of the big things that that we've done early on is we recognize the fact that most of the the women, especially that that we dealt with, they were not going to disclose. They didn't want to talk to us. We could get them out of an absolutely horrible situation. They would still tell us to go pound sand, and I'm I'm using politically correct <laughs> <laughs> terminology. They, they didn't they didn't want to talk to us and so we, we began early on building a network of victim service providers with with NGOs uh, you know nonprofits uh, that would go with us every time we were going to go out and recover a victim or every time we were going to do an operation and you know we would get a suspected victim instead of arresting them you know badgering them with hours of questioning we turn them over to a victim advocate the the advocate they're not law enforcement. They're not going to take them to jail. They're going to find them a safe place to go. They're going to get them food. They're going to get them clothing. They're going to get them to detox. They may take them to a SANE exam. And then they're going to get them into a shelter or a facility where they can get some type of restorative treatment. That made all the difference. They would talk to the advocate. They wouldn't talk to us. You know, it might take two weeks. It might take a month. It might take two months. But those advocates would maintain this constant, almost daily wraparound care and contact with you know with these victims. And after a period of time, that victim, who's now, who's now clean, sober, you know, healthy, in a good spot, um, would say, hey, listen, if you trust those, those law enforcement folks, I trust you, so I'll trust them. And they would come back around and they would, they would talk to us. And, and that's really what made all the difference.
1: I love the way that you put it just a minute ago when you said that prostitutes they have a choice, but then you clarified and says now albeit they they may have very few choices, but there's a choice. But those when you come in contact with those that are victims of trafficking, they have even fewer options available to them than do the prostitutes. I mean they'd be completely provided for oftentimes by the people who are trafficking. That they're they're completely dependent. Right. It's only when they have more options available to them because they are clean because they're sober, because they're healthy, because they're in a safe space, that they begin to be able to trust you. That goes beyond the scope of law enforcement in most cases. And that's why you have to use those advocates.
2: It absolutely does. As a law enforcement agency, we can provide immediate security. We might be able to get them a, a change of clothes or a hygiene kit, you know, buy them a meal, whatever the case might be, but we're not, by and large, we're not we're not trained to be to be therapists counselors to provide long-term restorative care, to provide housing, those types of things. You've got to have that network. Like I said, it made all the difference in the world in terms of our cases and you know, victim cooperation uh, and then going on to make successful you know, successful prosecutions. Again, by and large, we don't arrest victims. In my office, we're never going to do a quote-unquote prostitution sting. Because one, it, it's very difficult to determine the night of is that person a victim, or or are they self promoting? Number one, we know that you know when we look at the the hundreds of ads that are being posted on you know over thirty different websites or apps where commercial sex is sold. Our best guess is that eighty to ninety percent of the people that are that are being advertised for sale are in fact trafficking victims. Wow, and in what other crime in law enforcement do we, as a matter of practice, do we arrest victims, right? I mean, when's the last time as a law enforcement officer you arrested a homicide victim? Right. When's the last time you arrested a homicide victim in order to help them, right? Yes. And so, if we're not arresting other victims of crimes, why are, why are we arresting trafficking victims?
1: It would be akin to arresting a domestic violence victim in order to provide them protection, to help them out of that right. abusive situation. Exactly. Can we put a couple myths to rest, real quick, though, if you, if you don't mind? Sure. You often see on social media these posts. Hey, just want to give the word to everybody. My aunt was over in the Walmart parking lot in this city right here, and someone did this to her windshield wiper. I talked to local cops, and they said this is a a ploy that is used by human traffickers in order to be able to get easy access to you or mark you as a target.
2: Yeah, those are all urban legends. Um, none, none of that stuff is true. Now, we all know that there are some weird, creepy people at Walmart, <laughs> um, right? Or or Target, not just picking on Walmart, um, you know, whatever the store, you name it, um, they can be anywhere. But statistically, less than one half of 1% of people who are kidnapped in a sex trafficking environment, less than one half of 1%. Now, That's not to say that people don't get kidnapped. We all know that people get kidnapped. Bad things happen, there are evil people out there. But typically, the people who are kidnapping other people, they have other ulterior motives. It's not taking someone and selling them into a sex trafficking organization. It just doesn't work that way.
0: See, as just like a layman, I, my thinking goes, I think, well, people are being kidnapped and forced into this situation. You're saying that's not- the- No,
2: it's, it's it's not. As a matter of fact, the, I mean, a lot of it, there's a grooming process that takes place you know, for a lot of these victims. The one thing every trafficking victim has in common, we have work cases from every socioeconomic strata there is, from the lowest income neighborhoods to the wealthiest neighborhoods. The one thing every trafficking victim has in common is a vulnerability. That vulnerability could be drug and alcohol dependency. It could be the fact that you know maybe they came from a broken home. Maybe they grew up in a foster care family and they, they've never had a secure home life. Maybe they're the product of abuse. Maybe it's financial. Whatever the case might be. And, and a lot of times with kids, it's purely low self-esteem. It, it's the desire to be wanted and accepted by somebody. Uh, I, I recently saw a post of a kid who said, I just want someone to love me. That's a that's a red flag for a trafficker because a trafficker is going to see that and they traffickers know how to exploit those vulnerabilities. They know how to, to fill those needs, to suck people in, get them hooked, you know, through their charm or whatever initially, and then and then oftentimes it turns more violent, you know, after that. You know, it's not it's not the white vans. A few years ago we had we were getting tons of calls about white vans, and people were literally calling our tip line and saying, I, I'm behind a white van on the interstate. You know, and it's got a lock on the back. It doesn't dawn on them that it's, it's somebody's work van. The reason the lock's on there is to keep people from breaking into it. You know, we had one call into our office one day, a, a call I took where a lady was frantic. And she said, there's a, there's a white van parked in my neighborhood. It's right down the street. And I know, I, I know they are there. They, they are looking for kids in the neighborhood to kidnap. And I asked her on the phone, I said, does the van have ladders on top? And her response to me was, "Oh my gosh, you're watching it too." <laughs> um, and and I, I said, "Ma'am," I said, "Can you step outside and look down the street, and do you see a house near that van where maybe people are doing some work? Maybe they're maybe they're painting, maybe they're roofing, they're doing some siding, whatever the case might be." And she walked outside, and then she quickly realized, you know, just how silly it was. Um, but that's you know unfortunately that that's not the way it happens but there are still a lot of people that believe that, that that's the way it happens there's there's a lot of advertising by some well-meaning organizations that you know continue to want to put out pictures as part of their ad campaigns that show a woman or a young girl chained to a bed or chained to a radiator or handcuffed or whatever and that's that's just not reality that's just not the way that's just not the way it works
1: and I'm, I'm no by no means the expert. That's why we brought you on here. But as I was doing research for, for this episode, what I found was that in most cases, the victims initially are willing they're going not to someone they think is going to hurt them, but someone that is going to care for them. Someone that is going as you exactly is going to love them. And then the process going forward becomes more and more coercive. But the initial part is less is when it's least coercive in most cases.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we've had, we've had traffickers, they bought clothes, You know, they bought somebody an iPhone. They spend a lot of time and money kind of nurturing, you know, nurturing relationships and trying to establish trust, essentially. They fill a void, basically. Yeah, and and they're filling a void
1: it's interesting that the same terminology you're using is the same terminology and probably a very similar process to what you get from those pedophiles. Those that are seeking the the, the grooming process, you know, they're not snatching somebody and sexually assaulting them. In most cases, there are those outliers, but most of the time it's a process gaining trust and gaining dependence. It's just what the outcome is, is different. You know, is it going to be me? being sexually satisfied or am i going to be using this person to go out for the purposes of making money would that be would that be pretty accurate
2: yeah i mean i think that's that's accurate coincidentally this is human trafficking awareness month the month of january and I'm doing a presentation with DHS headquarters, uh, I believe the 31st of of January, part of a national youth forum. You know, one of the questions that, you know, that I ask is, you know, where, where do you think you're most likely to be trafficked or groomed or where is this process going to start? You know, is it at Walmart? Is it at whatever the case might be? I put up there a picture of a school or a church. We've seen both of those because you, there you've, we've had youth ministers, we've had, we've had coaches, we've had teachers. All groom kids, you know, into this activity, and they're in a position of public trust. They're in a position in which normally these these kids should trust this person uh, and trust their judgment. And in some of those positions, especially when you talk about a youth minister, for instance, or or any type of a a clerical clergy environment, you're creating a, a very oftentimes a very intimate atmosphere in which you're you're sharing a lot. Uh, There's a lot of closeness and that kind of thing, people praying together, whatever the case might be. And it it builds this level of intimacy that they can very, very easily uh, exploit.
1: I wanna point out here that we're not saying, don't don't send your kids to church or don't send (laughs) your kids to school. What we are saying though, is that no matter, especially for younger folks, if you're a parent, you need to understand that when there's a cry for help from your kid, If you're not the one that's going to answer it and fill that void, you have to be concerned that there's somebody else out there that will. That doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna be trafficked, but that example used earlier, all I want is someone to love me, the chances that's going to happen, it goes up. Absolutely. I want to ask you, and you know, we'll be wrapping things up here pretty quickly. I believe in 2022, the state of Alabama hosted. Was it the World Games? Is that what the the, the sporting event? Yes. Was?
2: Yep. We, yep. We hosted the the International World Games yep. um, in in Birmingham.
1: I know that there was a because it was on the news that the, there was a big presence around there for the purposes of preventing or uncovering human trafficking and there tends to be more and more of that around especially large sporting events the Super Bowl is coming up uh, here pretty soon and you almost always hear about hey uh, law enforcement today uh, they they rescued nine people from a human trafficking organization is it true that there tends to be more of that type activity Not not in the grooming part, but in the the, the sale part around these large sporting events.
2: So it's a tricky question. So large sporting events such as the Super Bowl, they don't cause trafficking. They don't create trafficking. The crime is already there. Exactly. But whenever you have an influx of people and people with disposable cash, disposable income, you're going to see an increase. People they, they typically get together, their inhibitions are lowered, you know, whatever the case might be, they're away from home, whatever the case. You know, as long as there's desire, you know, there's there's people, there's the desire, and there's money, it's it's gonna happen. And so really what those events do is they they create an environment in which that type of activity can readily flourish you know, during that period of time
1: and that's what i was trying to get across going to the super bowl is not going to get get you more likely to be kidnapped and and forced into human trafficking becomes is an end user target rich environment because yes it's not the grooming part that takes place. it's the sale part and for law enforcement it allows law enforcement to more easily and more readily identify a greater density of potential victims because of that correct and before i forget man thank you for your work in this because you're absolutely correct when i said hey you know what i want to help people i meant i want to help people and the people i want to help the most are the ones that are being coerced and as you put it don't have that many options so You had one special event here recently where you were asked to come back to mine in your alma mater you were able to speak to some students at liberty university doug and i both graduated from there doug uh, is a big believer in lifelong learning and has gone back and achieved his doctorate but he was asked to come back and speak at liberty how was that experience for you
2: yeah it was it was great uh, it was it was a tremendous experience. Love being back there, a lot of great students it's It's changed a lot obviously since you know since you and i have been there
1: it's in color now
2: yeah exactly <laughs> um it was just it, it was fun uh, to be back to you know to speak to students to answer questions and and to be able to to relate the work that i do the work that you've done to the worldview um that we both subscribe to and i would tell students proverbs twenty one fifteen says it's it, it is a joy for the just to do justice i think that's always what's driven me i've, I've got it I actually have it tattooed on my forearm, um, so I see it. I see it every day, you know, as as a reminder of of why we do what we do.
1: I firmly believe that law enforcement is a noble profession that is largely staffed by noble people who really do want to help people, and that's why we have this podcast. And I'll give a shout out again to Doctor Nassar for allowing us this opportunity to have the podcast, so that we can tell those stories to show people that. There are people out there that are dedicated to doing good, and we have one of those guests with us today, Brent, a guy that served in the military, has served in law enforcement. Those times overlapped, and at great personal sacrifice continues to do that job, and I think there's no greater calling than that right there.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's almost like when uh, uh, Doug was going through uh, school, it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he says, <laughs> yes. <everybody knows. laughs> up on uh, I think the, the one thing out of this episode that really shocked me was of how these uh, victims of human trafficking are obtained. And I want to uh, do our best to inform our audience. We're going to put some resources in the episode page so folks can learn a little bit more about that. If they were as shocked as I I was during the recording of this episode, to get some more details of how human trafficking actually works, so we can educate the public a little bit more, and uh, we'll put some of that stuff up in the episode. Page.
2: Yeah, DHS.gov backslash Blue Campaign. Has a ton of resources um, and and educational material about human trafficking, and that's it, it's it's a great resource for people who want to learn more and and want to learn how to protect themselves and their and their children.
0: And again, you can find it in the episode page. We we'll put it on our website at uh, Between virtualacademy dot com. You'll find all that information and information about Doug and all of our uh, previous episodes. It'll be right there at Between the Lines virtualacademy.com. A great conversation today, one that I, you know, you don't want to hear about those certain situations, but they go on, so you have to talk about. It.
2: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: it goes on everywhere. Uh Doug, thank you for your service and uh thank you for continuing to be out there in the front lines and trying to shut some of these things down.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.